Ukrainians living in southern Israel traumatized all over again following the Hamas massacre over the weekend. There are also a hundred recent, very recent Olim from Ukraine who were living there, mostly women and children, because as we all know, men are not allowed to leave Ukraine. Plus, aid for Israel and Congress in turmoil could further complicate U.S. funding for Ukraine. If the White House tries to push that request to combine funding, that is going to be a non-starter in an already deeply divided Republican caucus here in the U.S. House of Representatives. And later in the program, the work to to reopen schools in Ukraine, many of which have been destroyed by Russian missile strikes. Today is Tuesday, October 10th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky hailed ties with Romania as a factor of stability for Europe and beyond as he visited the NATO member state Tuesday for the first time since Russia's invasion last year. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kiev for an update on the visit. Tell us a little bit about what you're hearing and any significant things that have come out of it so far that you're hearing. Well, yeah, very important indeed a trip by President Zelensky to Romania. This is the first time President Zelensky goes to Romania from the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Uh, and um, according to President Zelensky, he's bringing some good news uh, from this trip. Uh, for instance, he uh, he reported that after the meeting with the President of Romania, uh, some positive news regarding our artillery and uh, and air defense uh, will be announced. Will be announced. Uh, he also said that uh, he had reached an agreement on accelerating the training of Ukrainian pilots uh, uh, on the F-16 aircraft. Uh, additionally, Ukraine and Romania signed a document where they recorded their agreements on cooperation uh, in, in the priority areas. We don't have yet the details, but what details we do have is that a, a grain corridor from Ukraine through Moldova to Romania should be operational quite soon. And also uh, the border crossing procedures will be simplified uh, simplified between the countries. While President Zelensky is doing these diplomatic meetings with allies to ramp up even more support, Russia continues some really intense attacks on Ukraine, as, as we've been hearing for the last 24 hours. Yes, that's true. Another drone attack happened over the night. And uh, again, this is another reason why air defense is such an important topic President Zelensky is discussing with, his, with Ukrainian allies and during all, all of his trips. Uh, at this point, we have confirmation that uh, over the night, Russian forces attacked Ukraine with 36 drones. 27 uh, of them were destroyed by the Ukrainian air defense. Uh, all of the drones were shot down over Odessa, Mykolaiv and Kherson regions, so in the south of the country. And uh, in terms of the damages, um, it was a hit in the Odessa region, the hit of the logistics infrastructure uh, that was reported by the uh, regional military administration and no casualties uh, were re reported at this point. And what are you hearing about the latest on the front lines? So finally we have at least a certain update, uh, conf confirmed update from the front line uh, in this past days uh, that we did not really uh, had any um, updates from the Ukrainian officials. So at this point uh, we know that Ukrainian defense forces 
have partial success in the Melitopol area in this, at the south front line. This was confirmed by the commander of this area, Mr. Ternovsky. Uh, this is important because this is one of the main directions for Ukrainian counteroffensive, the city of Melitopol and and area around. Also, uh, what was confirmed by the Ukrainian uh, military that uh, in the Bakhmut area, in the east of the uh, in the east of the country at the eastern front line, Ukrainian forces captured the commander of the volunteer battalion Alga of the Russian army. This is a very um, high-positioned military personnel of the Russian army, and definitely this will be a positive news for the farther exchange of the prisoners of war. Anna Chernikova reporting. For- for VOA from Kyiv. Well, there is a large population of Ukrainians living in Israel, some who sought refuge from the war in their own country, others who've been there for many years. And for many, the weekend attacks have added further trauma to those who've already fled following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I spoke with Marina Furman, USA Executive Director of the Jewish National Fund, which has been for years providing aid and support to those living in southern Israeli towns. Thank you so much for being with us. I understand your organization made a pretty daring evacuation of an elderly home for Ukrainians in the town of Starat. So we have an organization which name is Makom, meaning in Hebrew, the place, and they work in the communities. So when tragic events happen on Saturday, you know, city of Zdorot, which is uh, 10 miles from Gaza, which was completely overtaken by Hamas thugs. As soon as they had any break in missiles barrage, and as soon as it was safe, they went door to door to check on people. And there is assisted living community for retirees. And they found hundred people, um, Russian speaking, all the people who didn't really speak Hebrew had no idea what to do and what was going on. And was we just absolutely petrified. So Jewish National Fund, we have a logistical team on the ground in Israel. We organized buses and we evacuated them. In the tiniest period of time, it was possible to do that. And there was break in the in the fire and took them out and relocated them, which is still going to be incredibly traumatic for them because many of them have trouble working. It's a nightmare scenario, but uh, we also have counselors working with people and uh, just trying our best to help. Uh, And uh, was this specifically an elderly home for Ukrainians? It was elderly home for Olim from uh, former Soviet Union, but because what's happening in Ukraine, majority of them were Ukrainians. Can you talk a little bit about your broader efforts to help Ukrainians in Israel? So we also in the city of Zdorot, it's a nice community that a lot of new immigrants, Olim, as we call them, came. Mm-hmm. And there are also a hundred recent, very recent Olim from Ukraine who were living there, mostly um, children, uh, women and children, because as we all know, men are not allowed to leave Ukraine. They came there a few months ago. They do not speak Hebrew. They're still there because JNF, Jewish National Fund, needs permission from Israeli army to evacuate them. 
and uh, we have buses ready, we have places ready in Israel to evacuate them. We're just waiting for the opportunity to put them in buses, take them out of the harm's way. And in the time being, uh, volunteers with great risk for themselves check on them and make sure at least they inform because that's the worst thing when, you know, I lived in Israel for 10 years and I was in charge of resettlement in the Hasharon area. And the worst thing when you don't speak Hebrew, and something like that happens and you don't know what is happening and you have little kids and no information. Information becomes a source of comfort. So at the very least for now, we're keeping them informed. They know they're being evacuated and Jewish National Fund, through all the resources we have, financial resources, we're raising $10 million in 30 days. So people who need help don't have to wait for us to raise money. We Everything we have, all the resources we have used to help people in the South, and that involves um, Ukrainians uh, in Israel. And I understand you have a very personal connection to Ukraine. I do. I was born and lived in Kiev until I was 19 years old, and uh, my entire family was decimated during the Holocaust in Babi Yar in Kiev. But when we moved to Israel, I worked with, uh, and, and mass Aliyah started in the 90s. I worked with Israeli government to resettle people, and um, majority, a lot of them were from Ukraine. And uh, when the war broke out, I uh, went around the country raising money to help to help Ukraine, to help resettle Ukrainian in Israel. And I have to say that the generosity of people, nobody asked, are these people refugees, are they new Olim? People gave incredibly generously and um, it really is amazing to see. And I just want to add personally that when, you know, massacre happened, um, in the paper in Paris, and they were shot by terrorists. You know, we're all sad. We're all French. And when war in Ukraine broke, everyone said, well, Ukrainians. And this is not the time for everyone to say we're all Israelis, because this is really unprecedented, barbaric attack. There is no justification for that. They kidnapped little kids. They wiped out entire family in cold blood. And if world doesn't stand with, with Jewish community with Israelis, then we're in big trouble. Israel, it will help everyone it can, will take care of Ukrainians. We understand that when you flee from war and you find yourself in another war, this is a traumatic experience that I know from personal experience that that trauma will never go away. You'll have to deal with it for the rest of your life. And Jewish National Fund will be there to provide counseling, to provide help, to provide housing, to provide every assistance we can. We have to raise money. We want people to go online, jnf.org and contribute whatever they can. Israel needs everyone's support in whatever way people can express and show it. Are you aware of any of the people in the places that you have been supporting that are unaccounted for? Yes, there are people in Zderot. I mean, first of all, Jewish National Fund, Southern Israel, this Gaza border community was focused focus of our work for the last 10 years. And 
there was uh, a police station in Zderod that was decimated and 30 police officers were killed. And if you look at the names, I think like 30% of them were immigrants, not recent immigrants, obviously. But yes, there are people in the South. We, um, he was not Ukrainian, but mayor of uh, Shara Negev, which is community in the South, was killed on Saturday. There are a lot of people with whom we work and who became personal friends who are accounted for or killed and um, that is our trauma that we're trying to deal with and for us you know i find it incredibly helpful rewarding to know that i work for jewish national fund and there are so many people who just want to help and don't know what to do and we we can mobilize all good people in the world it's not a jewish cause it's humanitarian huge humanitarian tragedy every mother every grandmother every father every child every sister can imagine what it's like when your whole family is killed and the hamas calls families because they have their phones and live broadcast the murder um but we raise money, we send help, we send food packages, anything we can think of, anything we know they need. We're there and everything is immediate. We don't take time to debate. Should we do it? Should we not do it? We just do it. Marina Furman, USA Executive Director of the Jewish National Fund, was born in Ukraine and has lived in Israel. USAID for Ukraine is still in limbo as congressional Republicans scramble to elect a new speaker of the House of Representatives, which is mandatory to vote on funding. I spoke with VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson, about the challenges ahead for securing aid for Ukraine as Israel now plays into the equation. So really, what was already an incredibly complicated situation up here on Capitol Hill was just made even more complicated over this past weekend with the start of the war in Israel. Reportedly, the White House has asked the U.S. Congress to combine that Ukraine supplemental request from the summer and combine it with aid for Israel, which they think will make the aid to Ukraine package more attractive, given that there's so much broad support in the U.S. Congress for finding a very quick way to help Israel. Of course, that's going to be a poison pill for many of the conservative members of Congress up here who say that they're absolutely never going to vote for any combination of Ukraine aid and Israel aid. Then, of course, we also have the issue of the Speaker of the House, as you mentioned. They are looking like they are no closer to any resolution of that problem. We have two candidates right now, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, and former Speaker McCarthy may be in the mix. Okay, um, I guess he's changed his mind and decided to run. He has not said openly that he is running, but he has also not closed the door on support for him. There are a lot of members up here who are coming out and saying they will not vote for any Republican candidate for speaker unless it is Kevin McCarthy. And remember, because the numbers up here are so narrow, that Republican majority only has about four to five votes to play around with in order to get to the 217 you need to elect a speaker. They really need every single vote. And if some people are saying it's Kevin McCarthy or no one, then they have a real problem. And we probably won't see a speaker elected this week. And of course, that delays any sort of aid agreement for Ukraine. And the fact that now they're going to also need to address the issue of aid for Israel, that may be complicating things even more for aid for Ukraine. It, it, it absolutely is, right? You know, like I was saying, if they try, if the White House tries to push that request to combine funding, 
that is going to be a non-starter in an already deeply divided Republican caucus here in the U.S. House of Representatives. You have a lot of really complicated issues to work out. And don't forget, government funding runs out on November 17th. If the Ukraine need is further complicating keeping the government open, the White House may have to give up on that Ukraine aid request. That may be the thing that goes off the table in order to keep the government running. VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson, we appreciate your insights. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. On October 15th, Polish voters will choose their next parliament, which will form Poland's new government. One of two main political forces, the Law and Justice Party or the Civic Coalition, will likely have to form a coalition to govern Poland, the largest post-communist EU and NATO member, and a critical supporter of Ukraine in its defense against Russia's invasion. Miroslava Gungadze in Warsaw explains why these elections are important. In the days leading up to the election, candidates from all political parties are actively campaigning to rally supporters. Among them is Adam Bodnar, a human rights lawyer and former Polish ombudsman, a top independent state official responsible for safeguarding human rights. According to this Civic Platform Senate candidate, the elections are of utmost importance for the rule of law and the protection of civil liberties in Poland. They are basically about the future of Poland. Okay, either we are a democratic country or we are going further into some kind of authoritarian uh, direction. Uh, because uh, we know that if the democratic opposition uh, loses those elections, then basically we'll slide towards some kind of a system of authoritarianism. His young colleague Olivia Aziz, age 22, is running for the Polish same from the same party as Bodnar, born in Poland to a Polish mother and a Kurdish father. She represents a new generation of politicians. If she wins, she will be the youngest member of parliament in Poland. We need to pursue our ideas as the young generation because uh, the future depends on us and we know how to tackle the problems of the current society, right? So my aim is to also encourage young people to get involved into politics and to take matters into their own hands. Another significant factor in this election is Poland's aging population. Its 10 million pensioners make up about one quarter of the population. It's also the ruling Law and Justice Party's main electorate, making it a top priority to safeguard their welfare and promote the preservation of Polish traditions and deeply rooted religious values. Secretary of State for Polish-Ukrainian Development Jadwiga Yemilevich, who is running for parliament from the Law and Justice Party, which has been in power for the last eight years, highlights that the majority of Poles reside in rural areas and need to feel protected and secure. I think that the notion security is the main notion that's, uh, that is discussed uh, publicly. The word that has been pending in Ukraine we feel that it is also our war. Security in terms of war in Ukraine, in terms of refugees crisis, in terms of energy, and uh, the situation of uncertainty, which is coming in the next years. So connected with the economic crisis, all of this bunch of uh, problems are bothering people here. 
She points out that people are concerned about the refugee crisis, including Ukrainians who come to live in Poland after Russia invaded. A recent dispute between the Polish and Ukrainian governments over grain imports led to a drop in Ukraine's support among Poles. What I try to convince my Ukrainian partner is that this is not the question who is in power, because the question is about society. You did have 38 million people standing face to face with you and helping you and opening the door. And today, doesn't matter whether they vote for law and justice or civic platform, they feel a bit disappointed and they feel a bit offended even sometimes uh, that uh, being treated not very seriously by the Kiev partner. However, irrespective of the election's outcome, both political forces share a consensus on the necessity of providing continued support to Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression, all while keeping their Polish and European houses in order. Experts say the Polish election is highly significant for the entire EU bloc. The results will have implications for external EU policies and its internal cohesion. Miroslava Gongadze, VOA News, Warsaw, Poland. Russian shelling has destroyed or damaged 27 out of 34 schools just in the Chernikiv region alone, according to Nova Ukraine, a nonprofit group that provides aid to the people of Ukraine. But even as the war continues, some schools are starting to reopen with lots of help. Anna Kustachenko reports from the Chernikiv region in Ukraine. 13-year-old Stepan Poklat heads to Chernihiv school number 20. On March 6, 2022, Russian forces shelled the school, badly damaging it. For about 18 months, students, including Poklat, had no place to study. I miss a lot of things. I miss the pool where I used to swim all the time. I wanted to achieve something in life, but so much has changed, and I can't get it back. Natalia Malitz has been the principal at Chernihiv School number 20 for more than four years. Over half of the windows were broken, the gym was badly damaged, the roof was destroyed there and over the main building. A lot of doors were damaged and there was a huge crater in the schoolyard. There was only about $273,000 in the state budget to rebuild the school. That covered restoring the roof, replacing the heating system and some windows. But the money ran out before a handful of damaged classrooms could be rebuilt. That's when volunteers from a charity foundation called SafeFed stepped in to get more funding from abroad. Most donations came from the United States, according to Anna Putsova, head of regional development at SafeFed. We cooperated with several American organizations that helped us raise funds in America and then transfer them to us. Among other donations, the international nonprofit organization IREX gave $18,000 for the school's restoration in March. We came to their office while visiting the U.S., and right there they announced that they were donating a certain amount for classrooms. This became the spark that ignited other donations. Today, some 800 students attend Chernihiv School No. 20. Things are not back to normal yet. 
The school operates in shifts. Some kids go to school early in the morning and others start classes in the afternoon. That's because the school's bomb shelter can hold only 300 people and the students and staff go there for cover each time they hear an air raid siren. Anna Kostyuchenko for VOA News, Chernihiv region, Ukraine. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.